Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Fabiani Duarte, chair of the ABA Law Student Division. I'm a third-year law student at Mercer University's School of Law in Georgia. And I'm Sandy Gallant, governor of the Law Student Division's Seventh Circuit, representing the states of Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. I'm currently at 2L at the Northern Illinois University College of Law in DeKalb. Our show today is presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. Now, in this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law students and recent grads, from finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job. We hope this show is a trusted resource for you, our listeners. For today's show, we welcome Marsha Clark. Clark has been a practicing criminal attorney since 1979 and served as a prosecutor in the Los Angeles DA's office for 14 years. There, she served as a prosecutor for the trials of Robert Bardo, convicted of killing actress Rebecca Schaefer, and most notably, O.J. Simpson, tried for the murders of his ex-wife, Nicole, and Ron Goldman. Marsha wrote a New York Times bestselling book on the Simpson case. That book, without a doubt, was re-released this past February as an e-book, coinciding with the debut of the hit FX series, American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, where Clark is portrayed by critically acclaimed actress Sarah Paulson. For nearly the past decade, Clark has been a prolific novelist, authoring four legal thrillers featuring Rachel Knight, a driven and gritty city prosecutor, And on May 1st, Clark flips to writing from the perspective of a defense attorney in the launch of her fifth novel, Blood Defense, the first in a new series featuring an ambitious and hard-charging Los Angeles criminal defense attorney named Samantha Brinkman. Marsha Clark is a California native. She received her JD from Southwestern University School of Law. Since the Simpson trial, she has toured the U.S. and Canada, giving lectures on domestic violence, women's issues, public service careers, and various high-profile cases. And you've probably also seen Clark appear on various shows ranging from Oprah to NBC's Today Show to CNN's Anderson Cooper 360 and shows like Jane Villas Mitchell on HLN. So, Marsha Clark, welcome to the ABA Law Student Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. We are so excited to be talking to Marsha Clark. You know, when I talked to a couple of professors and told them what I was doing today, the reaction was, the Marsha Clark? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, yeah, the Marsha Clark, that's her. (laughs) And, you know, Ms. Marsha, you are on the front of so many of people's minds right now because not just this new book that you're launching, but this show that has been on FX for uh, the last several months. And we're excited to ask you about that. But, you know, I've, I've gotten to read a little bit of Blood Defense, which is already on the bestseller list. And this character, Samantha Brinkman, like Rachel Knight, is quite a motivated protagonist. How much of you do you write into these heroines in your stories? Well, it's hard to say. <laughs> With Rachel Knight, it was pretty obvious because I was kind of revisiting the days in my DA's office when it was not a Simpson case. It was just a normal DA's life. There were no cameras in the courtroom. You know, I wanted to go back to the old days when we got to just try lawsuits. 
like lawyers do, <laughs> as opposed to trying a lawsuit that turns into a circus or a soap opera. So Rachel Knight was, you know, a little closer to what a real prosecutor would be, if not necessarily me. Samantha Brinkman is a whole different thing, and she draws on the defense side of the practice. And I was a defense attorney, a criminal defense lawyer in private practice before I joined the DA's office. And I'm practicing defense work now on appeal. I do court-appointed appeals for the indigent. So I wanted to write a heroine that would incorporate more of my experience as a lawyer overall, as opposed to just prosecutor. And I also wanted to write a character who was a little more far out. And Sam is a twisted character. She's had a tortured past, and that has definitely had an impact on her present. And she, I think, was born with kind of her own bit of a twisted psyche to begin with, so that didn't help. And she's, um, she definitely is a law unto herself and a much more far-out character. And for me, kind of a little bit more fun than writing Rachel Knight because prosecutors are more constrained ethically by what they're allowed to do. They have to pursue the truth and all that stuff. And that gets boring after a while. So <laughs> I wanted to pursue something, you know, a little wilder and crazier and more fun. But how much of me, I think... I've heard it said, and I think it's true, that we basically wind up writing ourselves into every character, whether we mean to or not. You just can't avoid it. So I'm in all the good guys. I'm in the bad guys. You know, I think I'm all over the place. Not necessarily that I intended to be. <laughs> I don't think it's avoidable. You know, it's funny that you mention that. You say some of the bad guys as well. And when you look at the write-up of your plot line, the defendant in this book is a decorated veteran LAPD detective. Hmm. Who could that be from your past? No one. <laughs> okay, <Seriously>. good. <laughs> no one. Yeah. No, the guy that you will see, and when you read the book, you will see, it bears no resemblance to anybody in the Simpson trial. He's simply a decorated homicide detective who happens to be charged with the murder of his girlfriend and her roommate. Girlfriend is an actress, um, up-and-coming actress who had been a child star and then fell on hard times, kind of fell into drugs, and then got cast in a show that became a cult favorite and was just on the curve of reemerging and resurrecting her life and her career when she was murdered. And he's charged with the murder. Sam winds up taking the case kind of very reluctantly, because Sam hates all cops, hates them. But she's persuaded to take it by her paralegal, who's also her best friend, because they need the money. It's going to be a high-profile case, and it may help pull the practice into the limelight. Right. And you mentioned something about writing from the defense side. It's not as boring. That's one thing that I loved about the dialogue. It's very, very quick-witted. I remember listening to an interview that Sarah Paulson did when she talked about portraying you in the FX series American Crime Story, The People versus O.J. Simpson. She mentioned that about you as very deep-thinking and quick-witted. Do you like to be like that with clients and friends? Are you always thinking of the next you know, bite, uh, the next joke, of the next way to poke fun? or light at the seriousness of situations? Is that something that's just inherent to you? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope I'm not one of those people that's just always waiting, you know, that's listening to you only for the purpose of figuring out what I'm going to say next. Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. Because <laughs> that's so obnoxious. <laughs> Sometimes you see, you know, people, I, we all know people like this, right? People who, right. They're, they're so wedded to their own cleverness that all they're doing is listening for their opening while you're talking instead of listening to what you're saying. That's obnoxious. 
I am certainly grateful for the compliment of being quick-witted and quick-minded, loving that, because, you know, we have to be, don't we? <laughs> right. That's kind of a, an important lawyer thing, especially when you think about trial work. You have to really make decisions second by second. And so hopefully that's true, but I do think that when I'm listening to you, I'm listening to you. <laughs> Hope so. Yeah. Let me ask you this. When you, first of all, have you watched the show, the oh, yeah. American Crime Story yeah. show? Okay. So we're now more than 20 years after that trial. How surreal is it for you that it's playing out again on TV, this time as a television drama that millennials are really discovering? Um, very. It was very. I wasn't going to watch it. Really? I wasn't going to watch it because uh, it's too painful. That trial was a nightmare. You know, I mean, it was a terrible, terrible experience on every level. You know, I watched everyone forget that there were two innocent victims who were brutally murdered. And I watched a judge really basically hand the reins over to the defense from minute one because he was much more concerned with how he was going to be portrayed in the press than he was about getting it right. It was just a terrible thing to see the case go so far off the rails from the very beginning. And, you know, as a lawyer, you know, my power is only to object. I can't make the rulings. So, you know, that was, uh, it was pretty awful. So to have to watch it all over again, I didn't think I was going to. Mm -hmm. It was just too, too difficult, the thought of it. And then I kind of couldn't resist it because I wanted to see what they said about us. You know, what was they? <laughs> I couldn't, like, what are they doing to us? <laughs> yeah. So I did wind up watching it. And I have to say, I was so, I was impressed. I was shocked <laughs> at how, how right they did get some of the really big issues. Did they get things wrong? Well, of course they did. I mean, but, but largely they got, you know, when it comes to the big stuff, they got it right. Awesome. You know, I think about one particular episode in the series, and it's entitled Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. The episode is really focused on your character. And there's a lot of just raw drama centered on everything that you were dealing with personally in your life at that time, because you were going through a divorce at that time. But then also the elements of sexism that you dealt with in the courtroom and in the office. And I, I'm just curious if Sarah Paulson, in your opinion, got it right in her portrayal. Yeah, Sarah Paulson got it really right. Yeah, she got it really right. Yeah, it's so funny to hear you say she played your character. You mean me? Yeah, you. <laughs> um, my character. No, not you, your character. Um, yeah, it was amazing to me how right she did get it. The feelings of being kind of battered on all sides. And it was sort of endless. You know, and I never expected them, I must say. It was really surprising to me that they pulled out the sexism because no one had ever spoken about that, not during the time of the trial and not afterwards. So it was really, wow, you're kidding, <laughs> when I saw that they were doing that. It was absolutely true. It was really, in my experience as a lawyer, one of the more sexist experiences I'd ever had. Mm -hmm. I was often, you know, back in the day, it was really common to be the only woman in the courtroom. Very relatively, many fewer women in prosecution or criminal defense for that matter than today. But I had never been subjected to that kind of very obvious second-class treatment. And you really only saw a tiny bit of it. They really showed it to you in terms of what the media did. What was far worse than what the media did, because ultimately I could tune that out. I could walk into court and not worry about that. 
what was the worst was the sexism that I experienced at the hands of the judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the constantly more harsh treatment, more demeaning treatment, little comments at sidebar that were obnoxious and sexist, and it just permeated the trial. That the lawyers might make sexist remarks, okay, whatever, who cares? But when a judge does that to you, the jury really does take its cue from the judge, whether they mean to or not. And if a judge is treating a lawyer like a second-class citizen, the jury is likely to be influenced by that. Right. One of the scenes that Lee Sarah Paulson talks about as being one of the most impactful for her was your interaction with Judge Ito when Johnny Cochran comments about you're having to go home and take care of your children. She talks about how that was just something that if there was a moment that she connected with you most, it was that to have your motherhood questioned and your professionalism pulling a 70-hour work week and the constraints of this media circus and also having responsibilities at home, that that was probably probably the most poignant moment for her. Do you remember that, when that happened, when, when Johnny Cochran uh, talked about that? Sure. And what did you feel? I, I, I felt like, oh, it's a mix. I, I felt like, you know, you have no clue. You don't have to deal with this. If you have a wife, basically, who takes care of everything, but that's not true for all of us. And it was, to me, an unusually clueless remark for him. And so I was offended. I was simply offended. This reality of having to take care of everything, to work a full-time job, a a more than full-time job, in addition to taking care of the family, is really a common one for women and has been for many years. Whether women work outside of home or inside the home, they're expected to take care of everything. And it's a reality that most men, more now, of course, than ever before, but most men really don't experience. And so it was kind of tone deaf of him to make that remark. You know, more than 20 years later, after this trial and looking back, what do you think that trial, that whole drama, that whole three-ring circus, what do you think that particular trial says about the American criminal justice system or process? I think it shows the vulnerabilities of our process, but it doesn't have to be that way. It was an interesting thing that happened in the wake of the Simpson trial. The federal district court in Los Angeles, the presiding judge, put out a handbook that was a primer for new judges on the federal bench that basically said, see what Ito did, don't ever do that. Now, the feds already had a rule that precluded any cameras in the courtroom at any time, which is helpful in a way, but I'm not sure it's the best for the American public. But what they did say in that was they pointed out everything that can skew a trial and subvert justice. So, for example, allowing the defense to run amok in the courtroom and inject theories that have no basis in fact or logic, Colombian neckties, Colombian cartels, the notion that the cop could plant the glove when he had no opportunity to do it. By the way, also, given who the defendant was, no motive. And I challenged them in the very beginning of the case, knowing they were going to try and inject race and that particular detective's attitude. I challenged them. I said, look, if you can prove that he had a way to plant the glove, then fine, have at it. Then it's relevant that he might have bias or motive to do it. Mm -hmm. But if you can't, and I know you can't, then what is the point? What is the relevance of it? There is no relevance. There were 20 cops on the scene before he got there, and they all saw one glove at the murder scene, only one. So there was no opportunity for him to do it, and there was also no logic to the possibility that he could do it without knowing whether someone was about to confess whether there was an eyewitness, an ear witness. For all he knew, Simpson had an airtight alibi. So it was all of it 
all of it crazy. None of it made any logical sense. It should never have been allowed. The issue of race had no place in that courtroom. Ito not only let it in, but let it all over the place. And that alone ensured that we were going to, at the very best, hang the jury. So that's the kind of thing. And then, of course, on the more minute note, and because I'm talking to law students, I get to talk about this wonky stuff because <laughs> you guys get it. Yeah, we're sponges. We're soaking it in. <laughs> when, and this is something that I hope everybody remembers. When the defense is allowed to inject, to take witness on cross for an endless amount of time, going over stuff that has nothing to do with what you said on direct. Right. Your direct examination should guide what the parameters of the cross. And what the defense would do over and over again is, you know, they would, of course, exceed the boundaries of all direct. The judge overruled every objection of mine. On top of that, they would then take the witness into the defense case and say, you know what, since we've got him on the stand, don't make me recall him when it's time for the defense. Let me just examine him now. I would object because this is a way of burying all of the evidence I've just put forward under the garbage like Colombian cartels and all the rest of that nonsense. So the narrative that we were putting out on the prosecution side got buried under a mountain of nonsense by virtue of questions that should not have been asked, as well as allowing the defense to take on every witness practically as their own witness. They should be forced to call the witness when it's their case and deal with it then. And you know, if you're having trouble coordinating, that's your problem. And make sure you object. I mean, I objected. And, of course, you know what happened to those objections. But yeah. there's only so much you can do. But at the end of the day, I at least have the comfort of knowing I went in and fought every day and never gave up and never stopped fighting. And that's all at the end of the day you can do. Remember that, too. You know, you cannot. You know, I'm talking to lawyers for a change. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's fun and it's refreshing. So, you know, this is something that I think you should always bear in mind is, Two things. My mentor in the DA's office warned me when I first got into the special trials unit, and that was a small unit, by the way, that was all men when I joined it, and that was devoted to the high-profile cases. And he warned me and said, Marsha, watch out because the bad judge can make the best lawyer look bad. And he was right, because you don't control things. Right. And your inability to control things is something that you should never lose sight of so that your ego doesn't get too big when you win. You've got to remember that at the end of the day, a jury will believe only what they want to believe. You will not make them believe something they don't want to believe. That's true by way of people in general, but juries in particular. So just know that what you can do is do the best with what you can control, and that is the evidence that you put out, the witnesses that you prepare, do your very best to prepare them to put together a cogent case, and then do not beat yourself up if things don't go right, because there's only so much that you can do. In the years since the verdict, Marsha, you know, you've been able to, in some ways, control the lessons that we draw from this case. Since our audience is mostly law students, what are some of the lessons that you uh, would like them to take away from this case besides what you've already talked about? And have you injected those lessons, memorialized those in your novel like Blood Defense or the Rachel Knight series at all? Well, I think I kind of did answer that question <laughs> with okay. regard to the lessons taken. Um, so, I mean, it's important to maintain a mental and emotional balance and a grasp of reality as you present a case. Remember what you're able to control and what you're not. And that balance really should help on both sides. That is, do not get too impressed with yourself when you win, and don't get too down on yourself when you lose. 
the only thing that you can really honestly regret is not having given it 100%. Do I put that into the novel? I do. And that certainly is in blood defense. She goes the extra mile and then some, knowing that that's all she can really do. You know, that is what you can do to make sure that things go right. In her case, you know, an acquittal. (laughs) Right. Would you say, in terms of law students, what are those skills that law students need to develop in law school to be truly effective in the courtroom? You know, the same thing. I think that law school is where I really learned discipline because you have to, (laughs) right? You have to in order to focus and do the best you can. And that'll be true of the bar as well. And I think that that same kind of take-no-prisoners attitude in terms of giving everything 110%, don't stint on anything, never do a half-ass, never think, okay, that's good enough. Good enough will never be good enough. And if it doesn't go right, if you don't get lucky (laughs) and wind up winning anyway or passing the bar or passing your finals, you will have regrets for the rest of your life about that. On the other hand, if you give it your best shot, you won't. So this is true of everything that we're talking about, whether it's law school or whether it's trying lawsuits, civil or criminal, doesn't matter. You have to give it your all. In blood defense, Samantha Brinkman says that the reason that she went to law school was sticking up for the little guy. Is that one of the motivations for you to have gone to Southwestern? I think so. I do. I mean... What are some other ones, what would you say? Um, wanting to live indoors. <laughs> no, really, wanting to make a living... Okay. Yeah. I had, when I was a kid, my first dream was to be a crime fiction writer. I loved crime. I was addicted to crime from the time I was born, practically. And I wanted to write about it, and I wanted to write crime fiction. But as I got older, and especially when I got into school, I realized that another dream of mine was acting. This was not a way to guarantee a living. And law school seemed like a better bet that way. So that was part of the motivation, too. But within the first month of law school, I knew I was going to practice criminal law. And I knew that I was going to get up there and defend the little guy. There was no way I was going to work for the man and be a prosecutor. <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> it just teaches you never say never. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, what happened? Oh, okay. So I was, I was working on the defense side, and I had... Uh, I had a good time defending the dope cases and prostitution cases, and then I started picking up the violent crime, and my feelings started to change because I was seeing the victims and what they had gone through, and then I picked up a particularly ugly case in which our client had snatched a woman, kidnapped her basically, stabbed her 17 times, and threw her body out in an alley, and she lived. And I had to write the motion to dismiss that I knew basically should win if the judge followed the law because there was a a hole in the evidence. And when the motion did win and the case was dismissed, I just was so depressed. (laughs) My boss said, Marsha, I think that you need to reconsider defense work. (laughs) The DA's Uh... office is hiring. (laughs) So I thought that he had a point. And and that's when I, I became a prosecutor. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I used to work for the Macon District Attorney's Office and my supervisors, ADA Neil Halverson and our Chief Assistant District Attorney Nancy Malcor are huge fans of not just the show, but of you. Uh, Nancy said she almost flunked out of school because she was glued to the case. And, (laughs) you know, it makes me wonder what you're just talking about, the realization that you had. Did you see the endemic issues that now are coming up and being spotlighted by the Black Lives Matter movement or desire for restorative justice or cases like the trade? Von Martin case and others like that that are kind of shining a light on, on some inherent criminal justice fissures? Mm-hmm. 
I think that maybe we're all getting a real lesson in it. When I was trying cases in downtown Los Angeles for 10 years as a prosecutor before the Simpson case came along, and I have to say that the issue of race was all over the place, was just pandemic, you know. If there was a black defendant, we were going to be facing uh, allegations of some kind of police misconduct, whether it really was there or not, because that was the reality of things, and that's what the defense went after. The defense lawyers would always inject race. Um, So when they did it with Simpson, it was not a big surprise. You know, it was actually, I, I didn't know quite how they would, because he was a different case entirely. This was somebody who was beloved by the police. Didn't matter, as we know. But I think it has now in recent years that we've seen these shootings, I think it makes it even more clear what the problems were and why minorities view law enforcement with a completely different attitude than the white majority does. You know, there's a real healthy degree of skepticism, of suspicion, of mistrust, a great deal of mistrust. And that attitude is what the defense was able to build on in not just the Simpson case, but in all of the cases prior to that that I had seen in downtown Los Angeles. I think that it was kind of a shocker for many people. In the Simpson case, they had not seen what we had been seeing for years. I think that is what possibly led to the degree of shock that people had at the verdict, because they didn't know. (laughs) I think now they possibly do, having seen what we've seen in recent years. So, you know, yes, we can call it the race card in a pejorative sense, but there really is a fundamental basis for the mistrust, a fundamental basis for the suspicion that they view law enforcement with. We're almost out of time. We're going to go back to law school real quick and just ask you, if you could go back in time to yourself as a 1L, what advice would you give to yourself? Hmm. Get some sleep. <laughs> Get some That's sleep. good advice. <laughs> At the end yes. of the day, it's not going to help to pull every all-nighter that you can possibly pull because you won't be able to think clearly. That's one. The other one is, you know, I will hearken back to what I said. Do give it your all. Do give it your every, every ounce of energy that you can, but don't push yourself past the breaking point. Ultimately, that will prove unproductive. And try to have a life. Just try a little bit. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> are you? Yes. I know. Yes. Yeah, we are. We are. And we promise to make you proud in these exams that we kick off next week. So we promise. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Marsha, what would you say, if you could, in just a sentence or two, what your life's motto might be? What would you say your calling is in words as we sign off today? My life? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Really? In 10 seconds or less? Well, do you have something that you say to yourself every morning and say, you know what, I'm going to do this because whatever? Or is there something that you've carried with you since your childhood or since law school that you would say is is a motto you draw strength from? I would say, whatever you do, do it the very best you can. You know, never hold back and never do anything halfway. Well, Marsha Clark... Thank you so much for your time today, for an awesome conversation. This has been a real treat, an honor to speak with you, ma'am. Well, thank you, guys. It was really fun, and I hope that something I said is helpful to someone who's listening. Certainly was for us. So thank you very much, Marcia, for joining us. Take care. You too. Thank you. Bye, guys. Well, we hope you've enjoyed another episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. We'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our show on iTunes. 
And once you've done that, take a moment to rate and review us as well. You can also tweet to us at at ABALSD and use hashtag Law Student Podcast to tell us what's on your mind. I'm at Fabiani Duarte. And I'm at Sandy Gallant, signing off. Thank you for listening, everybody. Work hard, play smart, and as Marsha Clark says, get some sleep. Until next time, podcasters. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.